three, two, one. Welcome everybody to episode 3 here at Kuma House. I'm your host Jordo and I'd like to thank everybody out there for joining me again this week. I'd like to wish you all a very happy new year and all the best in 2022. With the crazy year that, tw- that was 2021 just coming to an end, I thought what better opportunity than this to reflect back at an industry that's actually had quite a few wins over the last year. This week, I'd like to discuss space and our future in it. It seems appropriate to start our conversation today in regards to something that's been making very recent headlines in regards to our future in space. Uh, I'm talking about a project that's been over 30 years in the making from its inception, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, if you don't know what this is, that's all right. We're going to discuss it a little bit here today. Um, The reason that this has been making so many headlines over the last couple of weeks is because it was finally launched Christmas Day at 12.20 p.m. local time in French Guyana. Um, This $10 billion project uh, has been a joint operation between NASA uh, and the European Space Agency, uh, and it started its construction all the way back in 2004. A successful launch means that this mission is well underway. However, we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, As we speak, a very complicated procedure is being performed on the James Webb uh, as it attempts to deploy its very specialized sun shield so that it can properly do its job. So, where is this thing going and what exactly is it going to do when it gets there? Well, I think it's best to start the conversation uh, discussing the mission of the James Webb. And the mission is to find the very first galaxies that ever formed in the universe. And how does it intend to do that, you might ask? Well, the James Webb is an infrared telescope. And infrared is just another... Uh, portion of the electromagnetic spectrum uh, that we most notably recognize as heat. And so the James Webb will point its calibrated sensors in the directions that it wants to look and it will monitor for the heat or infrared signatures um, that can be attributed to the gases and such that were present at the birth of the universe. Now you might be asking, how is that even possible? But as it turns out, that looking into the night sky is like looking into your very own time machine. Um, Because all the stars are so unfathomably far away, the amount of time that it takes the light to travel from those stars to us uh, is, in some cases, millions of years. So what that means is that the light of the star that's hitting your eye predates even humanity's existence. Another way that we can look at it is 
if you had a way of instantaneously transporting yourself across the universe and then had a way to look back at the earth in incredibly high definition when you looked at the surface of the earth you would see dinosaurs walking around and again that's because the light from what you're looking at takes so long to travel even through the vacuum of space that by the time it gets to you it's already aged millions of years so now that we understand the way that the night sky is a time machine let's take a look back at the James Webb Space Telescope so what it's going to do is it's going to use its highly sensitive infrared telescope and it's going to attempt to look for uh, the heat signatures that were present at the birth of the universe if it can do this there's chances that uh, it will be able to provide us with images of the way that stars are formed, uh, the way that uh, the birth of the early galaxies uh, occurred, uh, stuff that we have only been able to speculate uh, on up until this point. Now, in order to be successful, there's quite a few requirements that have to be met. Um, as we discussed, the James Webb Space Telescope is an infrared one, and it's looking for these heat signatures that are insane distances away from us. So, in order to be successful, the dark side of the telescope, where all these sensors are located, uh, has to be kept in the neighborhood of negative 230-something uh, degrees Celsius. And, uh, and this task seems even more difficult when you think that the light side of the telescope that's exposed to the sun uh, is probably going to be in the neighborhood of uh, plus 85 deg degrees Celsius. Um, so that's where this heat shield deployment is so crucial to the operation of this telescope. Now, since its launch, a few of the key stages of the SunShield deployment have already been completed. And over the next few days, the team uh, responsible for the James Webb is going to continue deploying the SunShield uh, so that it is prepared to start its mission as soon as it gets to its final destination. But you may be asking yourself, a question that I asked myself is how is a sunshield going to be successful uh, in achieving a temperature differential of about 300 degrees Celsius? Well, the key to that lies in the multi-layer construction of the sunshield. Um, engineers at NASA and the European Space Agency uh, have found a plastic material called Captain that is lightweight and flexible um, and has the right uh, properties required um, for solar radiation reflection. Um, however, nothing is without its faults and Captain is no exception to that rule. So even though it is very useful at blocking solar radiation, uh, Captain is actually pretty transparent, which means it's not that great at blocking solar light. And solar light will still contribute heat to these sensors that we need to keep very, very cold. 
So how did the engineers resolve this issue? Well, they put a 100 nanometer thick layer of aluminum uh, on each of these sheets of captain to not only make it reflective to solar radiation, but also to solar light. Due to the excessive heat that uh, comes from the sun, uh, the first two layers of the sun shield are also coated um, in a silicon substance that better helps reflect the sun's heat energy back out into space. Now, where you get into the really cool um, bit of engineering on this sunshield uh, is in the way that the multiple layers are aligned with each other. Uh, so the layers of the sunshield are actually aligned so that when there is inevitably some radiation that makes it through each one of the layers, uh, it's reflected in between the layers in such a way that it actually just reflects it outwards uh, back out into space and away from all the instruments on the telescope itself. Um, so with the first two stages complete, uh, over the next couple of days, they're going to begin the long nail braiding process of tensioning this huge kite that we call um, our sunshield. Uh, and essentially, this is probably one of the most integral parts of the entire operation because if these sensors cannot be protected from radiation and they cannot be protected from light and heat, uh, this is essentially a $10 billion uh, piece of space junk that's just going to be floating around uh, with no real purpose. So they're taking their time, probably going a little slower than maybe they had originally planned, but the main reason for that is so that at the end of the day, the mission can be a success. Now, we've talked a little bit about what the James Webb is and what it intends to accomplish on its mission. And I think next we should really lean into where exactly is this telescope heading? So, unlike the Hubble Space Telescope, which is one that many of you are probably familiar with, uh, the James Webb will not be completing its mission in Earth's orbit. Uh, the James Webb due to the um, requirements uh, for it to actually accurately capture the data that it's looking for, uh, it's going to be located at a place that we refer to as Lagrange Point 2. So what exactly is a Lagrange Point? Well, a Lagrange Point is a pretty unique and interesting bit of physics uh, where a small massed object in space uh, is essentially being acted on equally by two larger gravitational bodies, uh, providing a, these smaller objects like spacecrafts uh, essentially a state of equilibrium uh, where they can use a very small amount of fuel uh, in order to keep themselves in position. And when you're trying to detect infrared signatures that are billions of years old, I'm sure you can understand just how crucial it is uh, for these spacecraft to have some sort of stability. Now that we understand how these Lagrange points work, uh, where exactly is Lagrange point two? Well, there's five Lagrange points that are all around the planet Earth. The one that we're most interested in, number two, actually lies about 1.5 million kilometers behind the Earth as viewed from the Sun. 
And this location is also going to help us because the Earth itself is going to block uh, a lot of the solar radiation and solar light that would otherwise be hitting the James Webb uh, telescope and making its effectiveness uh, far more difficult to achieve. So we've got our location, we've got a plan when we get there. At this point, we're really just playing the waiting game. Uh, from its current location, it's anticipated that the James Webb is going to take approximately 30 days uh, to reach its final destination. Uh, so uh, I definitely recommend you all to stay on top of this bit of news. Uh, if you don't find it in your news feeds, I will leave uh, a link in the episode description of a place that you can go to check out uh, the location of the James Webb telescope at any given point in time. Um, the discoveries that this telescope are going to make uh, are potentially going to change our understanding of the birth of our universe uh, and allow us to use that information to make many, many other new discoveries. It seems as though we've uh, reached a good point to move on in today's conversation. And the next topic that I'd sort of like to address uh, in regards to our future in space uh, is about the currently ongoing billionaire space race. And in order to get a good bird's eye view of this particular topic of discussion, uh, we got to go back to the 90s uh, when the Ansari X Prize was first offered. Um, it was the largest prize uh, in history that had ever been offered at $10 million, uh, and it seeked uh, for independent businesses to develop reliable uh, and reusable space travel that could be uh, commercially viable. This contest was ongoing until in 2004 a winner was announced. Um, Mojave Aerospace Ventures, a team led by the famous aerospace designer Burt Rutan, uh, was ultimately awarded the prize. Um, however, their tech was very shortly scooped up and licensed uh, by Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. This got the ball rolling, and in the early days, uh, what would become a $2 billion space industry was launched. And so you might be asking yourself, why is this uh, billionaire space race uh, a good thing? And the truth is, it's actually a good thing for a multitude of reasons. Uh, the first of which that I'd like to discuss is the advancement in technology. If you look at the last space race, which took place in the 1960s, you can see that the advancements in technology that occurred while launching satellites and trying to put people on the moon uh, is something that I truly believe uh, sparked the modern technological revolution that we've all been witness to. And so with our modern day space race well underway, uh, I truly do believe that the technological advancement and innovation we're going to see in years to come um, are going to lead us to the point uh, of developing tech that is uh, outside the realm of what we consider to even be possible uh, at this point. New tech has the potential to be really great. But what other uh, opportunities does this billionaire space race uh, really bring to us? Well, the next one that I'd like to discuss a little bit uh, comes in the form of employment opportunity. 
Um, in 2020 alone, uh, the modern space industry actually brought to the table 400,000 new jobs. Uh, and you have to keep in mind that this is in the middle of a pandemic. So if things were different, it, it's pretty safe to assume that uh, the amount of jobs we would have seen develop out of this industry would have been uh, even more uh, than they already were. And so if these companies continue to invest in this industry uh, at the rate that they have been, uh, it's safe to assume that uh, uh, the space industry is going to provide uh, a job market for uh, many people in the future. And as this industry continues to grow, it's going to continue to boost the economy and it's going to continue to provide diversification of our employment opportunity, uh, which is going to be very important as the world as a whole uh, starts to slowly shift away from uh, our traditional energy sources and other traditional means of manufacturing. Um, it's going to provide... Uh, it's going to provide some relief for what's going to become uh, essentially a bit of a job vacuum. Not only is this industry going to provide you uh, a way to earn an income, but it's also going to give you the opportunity to spend uh, your income as well. Um, because this industry is becoming more and more privatized, um, these companies are able to allocate their funding uh, to areas that would be considered frivolous misuse of taxpayer dollars uh, from government research agencies such as NASA uh, or the European Space Agency. So I guess we just chalk that up to uh, another as another bonus to why this billionaire space race is actually a good thing because otherwise um, recreational space travel uh, may have never come to fruition. And seeing that Virgin Galactic has already uh, gone to low orbit space and Blue Origin has actually sent two uh, civilian crewed missions uh, to low orbit space as well, uh, I think that's an indication that the recreational side of space travel has no uh, intent of slowing down either. And as we discussed a little bit earlier, all this is going to continue to boost economy and it's going to continue to provide new jobs for everybody as well. So other than tech, other than employment, and other than recreational travel opportunities, what other benefits would this space race really have for us? Well, the final two talking points that I'd like to discuss uh, are really more about our future uh, in space. Um, the first one, which we will come back to a little bit later, uh, is the potential resource opportunity uh, that space provides us. And the other talking point that I would like to get into right now uh, is in regards to us becoming a multi-planetary species. Um, I'm talking about colonizing other planets and at this point probably most notably Mars. Um, it's no big secret that Elon Musk is an advocate of going to Mars. Uh, he wants to have a city there by the year 2050. Um, but where are we in regards to Mars right now? Well, um, over the past few decades, we've sent uh, many things into space, uh, but five, which we're probably very proud of, uh, are the rovers that have landed on Mars's surface. Uh, the most recent rover that we have launched uh, is Perseverance. 
Uh, it was launched uh, July 30th of 2020, uh, and it completed its trip from Earth to Mars and landed in the Jezero Crater uh, February 18th, 2021. Uh, so it's just about nearing uh, a full Earth year uh, on the Mars surface. However, because Mars is a little bit further away from the Sun than we are, uh, and it travels a little bit slower in its orbit, one um, Mars year is actually the equivalent of 687 Earth days. So our little rover friend is actually only just about nearing the halfway point of its first trip uh, around the Sun on Mars. And even though we've landed a few things on Mars already, uh, it's always so exciting and it's always such an engineering marvel to see the new and interesting ways that we are putting our tech on the red planet. Um, this particular rover has a great deal of high-resolution cameras, uh, scientific equipment that is designed to measure um, certain aspects of the red planet to determine um, the current state of the planet as well as the history of the planet. Um, the crater that they have landed the rover in, uh, they're based on satellite imagery, they're optimistic that there is potential the rover will find uh, a type of rock called sedimentary rock present in this area. So why is sedimentary rock important to us? Well, sedimentary rock is the rock uh, that is washed away through water erosion. So as water passes over stone, it breaks off a bunch of small little pieces and it carries them down to where the water is pooling. Um, essentially, any evidence of sedimentary rock is an evidence that there was flowing liquid present on the planet at some point in its history. The collection of uh, samples of the Martian surface uh, are just one of the many things that the Perseverance rover is going to test on its journey. Uh, but this, for the first time, uh, we sent our rover with a little friend of its own. Uh, Perseverance, uh, in its undercarriage, uh, was carrying a very small helicopter which has been named Ingenuity. Uh, this helicopter was actually only designed for uh, about 30 days life uh, or 30 Earth days life on Mars uh, and it's well surpassed, surpassed that. So uh, everything that we are testing and all the experiments that we are performing with this little helicopter um, is all brand new data uh, that we uh, ne never thought that we were going to gain access to on this particular mission. And so as our two new pieces of Martian tech continue to explore and experiment, we're just going to have to sit tight here at home uh, and wait for the data to come back. Uh, now, if you're interested in this rover, uh, I highly recommend you check out a website that I will leave a link to in the episode description. Um, there you'll be able to see the body double that they use uh, for the Perseverance rover so that technical maneuvers can be practiced here on Earth before we practice them somewhere that if a breakdown occurs it would be a very expensive repair bill to correct. Um, and you can also watch the video from what's known as the seven minutes of terror. So when 
something is landed on the Martian surface, uh, it has to be done uh, entirely autonomously. And the reason for this is because there's actually a seven minute delay in communication between Mars and Earth. So during the landing sequence, everybody at Mission Control is holding their breath because essentially either the rover has crash landed or proper landed already for seven minutes uh, before any of that information makes its way back here for us to actually know whether the mission has been successful or not. And since all the data has made it back safe and sound, you can watch a video that was shot on, from multiple angles on the rover's high-resolution camera of its landing sequence being performed. Uh, and the way that they landed it, just to note, was really cool. They used something that they've called a sky crane, which is essentially a jetpack for the rover that's attached via some cabling. Uh, so during the landing sequence, uh, this sky crane uses its thrusters to carefully lower the rover down to the Martian surface. Uh, and as soon as the Mar uh, as soon as the Perseverance rover's wheels touch the surface of the planet, the cabling is detached, and the sky crane flies as far away as possible with the amount of fuel it has remaining before self-destructing. There is a lot of cool stuff surrounding the Perseverance rover and Ingenuity, um, honestly enough that could probably fill an episode on its own. Uh, but we'll move on for today. However, I definitely recommend you to check out the link that I left in the episode description. Now that we know that there's a great deal of research that's being done on the surface of Mars, where does that leave us in, in regards to the first human settlement there? Well, in all honesty, we're still quite a ways off. Um, and as we learn more about Mars, uh, it changes the dynamic of what we previously considered to be our options uh, for starting a civilization there. Uh, for instance, if you were to perform an image search uh, on Mars City or Mars Civilization, I bet you that a majority of the images that will show up are going to be these massive clear dome structures that house entire cities. Well, the reality of this is that it's not practical. Um, Mars, unlike Earth, has no magnetic field, which means that the planet itself offers us little to no protection in regards to solar radiation, um, which can be very harmful for us. Um, even at the low levels that uh, get through uh, here on Earth. I really do think that because these dome structures would require such elaborate engineering in order to make them safe and effective to house our future civilizations, it just becomes prohibitively expensive at that point. Um, so the real answer to life on Mars, uh, so far as it seems, uh, is some sort of underground habitat. Um, many scientists are looking at some ancient lava-carved tunnels where uh, lava millions of years ago that was present on Mars uh, carved out these massive tunnels that could potentially house small cities. Um, you have someone like Elon Musk who's saying that uh, the Boring Company could potentially be drilling tunnels that could house these uh, underground structures. Um, 
there is some uh, research being done on temporary structures or the potential for surface structures uh, through a 3D print and Berry style technique where a 3D printing robot is sent to the planet um, with a model uh, stored in its memory. Uh, it performs its 3D print function and prints some sort of structure that it then buries in the Martian sand in order to protect it from the radiation. Um, there's still a lot of research to go into that particular idea. Uh, as I said, it's seeming as though the underground um, habitat is the best bet for uh, short-term, at least, uh, future on Mars. And as you start to look into uh, our future living on the red planet, you can find some interesting articles on uh, the self-proclaimed capital of Mars, Nuwa. Um, it is a settlement that's being proposed where sometime in the short-term future you will be able to uh, purchase your residency there. It'll cost you somewhere in the neighborhood of $300,000. Uh, it will include a one-way ticket from Earth to Mars, uh, a 25 to 35 square meter condo, uh, and you will sign a contract that states that about 60 to 80 percent of your working time uh, will be dedicated to performing tasks for the city. Uh, so the city will distribute some sort of task for you to complete, uh, and that will just be a part of your day-to-day -day job. Now, unlike the 3D printed method or the uh, lava tunnel or the boring company, uh, the proposed design for NUWA uh, is actually seeing it uh, embedded into the side of uh, a Martian cliff using a series of elevators uh, and internal passageways to connect the various sections of the city. Looking at the concept designs uh, for the city, it does look very cool. However, in all the information that I've been able to find, uh, there is not even an expected start date for this project given, so uh, don't hold your breath waiting for this one, uh, but definitely keep your eyes out for any news in regards to it. Now that we've talked about our future living on the red planet and colonizing, um, I'd like to dip back into uh, another one of the benefits we discussed earlier uh, about the billionaire space race, and that's at the new potential of space for resources. Now, the concept of, say, mining meteorites has actually been around for quite some time. I mean, it's not... Uh, hard to understand why um, these things are some of them are massive and contain rare earth metals and and other types of minerals that could be worth in the trillions of dollars uh, unfortunately um, it is an expensive endeavor and we don't really have I don't think the required technology to properly uh, mine for these things and safely transport the goods back here home. Um, our probably best bet as far as gaining resources from space is going to be the moon. 
the moon has an excess of something that is known as helium-3. Uh, and helium-3 is best utilized as a fuel for nuclear fusion reaction. Um, and if you were here for episode one, you'll know that uh, we discussed a little bit about fusion reaction and just how clean that it can be. Unfortunately for us, there's not a lot of helium-3 present on Earth. But the moon does have a lot of it. And if we could find a way to safely extract it and transport it back to Earth, I don't want to say that we would have an unlimited supply of clean energy, but we would have a large supply of clean energy for sure. I do think it needs to be discussed that uh, prior to starting any mining or any uh, attempt to turn our moon into something that's profitable, uh, a lot of research needs to go into what exactly the impacts of all that would be, uh, not just on the moon, but also here on Earth. Um, there's always the possibility that if we don't do the right amount of research, uh, we could cause some irreversible damage to our own planet uh, through the overmining of moon resources. Because I think it's worth stating, uh, as I'm sure many of you know, that it's the moon's uh, pull on Earth that affects our tides. Uh, and there's even some scientific research to back up the fact that uh, it probably affects the uh, Earth's crust as well. I really do believe that messing with something that has such a drastic impact on our planet without mountains of prior research is ill-advised to say the least. That's where I really hope that a company by the name of Solar System Resources has really been doing their homework because they have written a letter of intent to another company named Nuclear Corp uh, promising to deliver them 500 kilograms of helium-3 from the moon. Um, I could not find any additional information uh, further than just the fact that the letter of intent has been written. Uh, so I will definitely be looking in the news to try and learn more uh, about exactly how they intend to do this. Well, it seems as though we've reached a good stopping point for today. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody out there for listening in this week. I certainly hope you've all gained some new knowledge or some insight on today's topic. Uh, I'd like to invite you all to come back next week as we look into yet another intriguing and exciting uh, subject. Uh, our Instagram and our email are located in the episode description, so please feel free to reach out with any comments or concerns that you might have about this episode or about future episodes. If you've enjoyed this week's podcast, please consider liking and please consider sharing. Keep asking, keep learning. And have a great week, everybody.